Iskan founder Acharya Shila Prabhupada Ki Jai, Nantakoti Vaishnav Rinda Ki Jai, Namacharya Shila Haridas Thakur Ki Jai, Prem Shikoh Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda, Shri Adoita Gadadhar, Shri Vasadi Gaur Bhakti Rinda Ki Jai, Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gogopina Shaimakunda Radha Kunda Gidi Govardhan Ki Jai, Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai, Mathura Dhamma Ki Jai, Nabhajit Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai, Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai, Ganga Maya Jamuna Devi Ki Jai, Bhakti Devi Ki Jai, Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai, Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada, Nama Om Vishnupadaya. Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Shumati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Nichi Namane Namaste Saraswati Devi Gauravani Pacharne Nivasesa Sunivadi Paskatya De Satarne Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Utapada Kamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamsha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Deva Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamsha Vanchakalpati Vishaki Pasambiva Tapati Tanam Pavanavya Vaishnavinamaha. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. So August 19th, 2020, uh, from Hawaii, over the internet, and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 2, Prithu Maharaja's meeting with the four Kumaras, Text 11. Vyalalaya Juma Vaitesh Varitakila Sampada Yadrahas Tirtapadiya Yadrahas Tirtapadiya Paratirta Vidardita Vyala Venomous Serpents Alaya Home Hmm. Jumaha. Jumaha. Tree. Tree. Vai. Vai. Certainly. Certainly. Teshu. Teshu. In those houses. In those houses. Arikta. Arikta. Abundantly. Abundantly. Akila. Akila. All. All. Sampadaha. Some of opulences. Opulences. Yet. Yet. That. That. Griha. Griha. Houses. Houses. Tirta Padia. Tirta Padia. In relation with the feet of great saintly persons. In relation with the feet of great saintly persons. Pada Tirta. The water which washed their feet. The water which washed their feet. Vijarditaha. Vijarditaha. Without. Without. 
Muted. Unmuted. Srila Prabhupada's translation. On the contrary, this is on the contrary to the previous verse about receiving brahmanas, on the contrary, even though full of all opulences and material prosperity, any householder's house where the devotees of the Lord are never allowed to come in and where there is no water for washing their feet is to be considered a tree in which all venomous serpents live. Srila Prabhupada's purport. In this verse, the word Tirtha Padiya indicates devotees of Lord Vishnu or Vaishnavas. As far as Brahmanas are concerned, in the previous verse, the mode of reception has been already described. Now in this verse, special stress is being given to the Vaishnavas. Generally, the sannyasis or those in the renounced order of life take trouble to enlighten the householders. There are Ekadandi sannyasis and Tridandi sannyasis. The Ekadandi sannyasis are generally followers of Sankar Acharya and are known as Mayavadi sannyasis whereas the Tridandi sannyasis are followers of Vaishnava Acharyas, Ramanujacharya, Madhvacharya, and so on, and they take trouble to enlighten the householders. Ekadandi sannyasis can be situated on the platform of pure Brahman because they are aware that the spirit soul is different from the body, but they are mainly impersonalists. The Vaishnavas know that the Absolute Truth is the Supreme Person and that the Brahman effulgence is based on the Supreme Personality of Godhead, as confirmed in the Bhagavad Gita 14.27, Brahmanohi Pratistaham. The conclusion is that Tirtha Padiya refers to Vaishnavas. In the Bhagavatam 1.13.10, there is also another reference, Tirti Kurvanti Tirtani. Wherever he goes, a Vaishnava immediately makes that place a Tirtha, a place of pilgrimage. The Vaishnava sannyasis travel all over the world to make every place a place of pilgrimage by the touch of their lotus feet. It is mentioned here that any house which does not receive a Vaishnava in the manner already explained in the previous verse is to be considered the residential quarters of venomous serpents. It is said that around the sandalwood tree, which is a very valuable tree, there is a venomous serpent. Sandalwood is very cold, and venomous serpents, because of their poisonous teeth, are always very warm and they take shelter of the sandalwood trees to become cooler. Similarly, there are many rich men who keep watchdogs or doormen and put up signs that say, Do not enter. Trespassers not allowed. Beware of the dog, etc. Sometimes in Western countries, a trespasser is shot, and there is no crime in such shooting. This is the position of demoniac householders, and such houses are considered to be the residential quarters of venomous snakes. The members of such families are no better than snakes because snakes are very much envious and when that envy is directed to the saintly persons, their position becomes even more dangerous. It is said by Chanaka Pandit that there are two envious living entities, the snake and the envious man. The envious man is more dangerous than a snake because a snake can be subdued by charming mantras or by some herbs, but an envious person cannot be pacified by any means. Vyala laya juma vatesh vari kritakila sampara yad grihas tirta padiya para tirta vivarjitaha. On the contrary, even though full of all opulence and material prosperity, any householder's house where the devotees of the Lord are never allowed to come in, and where there is no water for washing their feet, is to be considered a tree 
in which all venomous serpents live. So this is a reference to the previous verse uh, where it says that uh, exalted guests, particularly brahmanas, are to be offered water, the same place, and paraphernalia for reception. And in such a place, the home is glorified. So many years ago in London, when I was uh, not very familiar with London, I hadn't been there very often at that point. Uh, After that, I started going almost every year, sometimes more than that. For some time, I spent many months in in London. But anyway, when I was new to London, so I was staying at the Soho Temple in the heart of the city, and we went out for Harinam. Now, the devotees in London go out for Harinam, Sankirtan, three times a day, every day, with a small kirtan party, and then a very large kirtan party on Saturday night. So this was a weekday and going out at midday. The party was larger than usual because Mahavishnu Swami, who perhaps some of you know, uh, was leading the party. And uh, he, he's a very humorous person, so he brings out an accordion, and he has uh, shoes of two different colors. He wears Crocs uh, that are different colors from each other, and he wears a hat with all kinds of things decorating the hat. And, and he's a very, very uh, exuberant and funny person. So he was leading the party. Anyway, we got to the spot where the Haryam Kirtan was supposed to begin, and it was cold and rainy. Now, again, uh, I was new to London at that time, and when I noticed it was cold and rainy, I thought, oh, we're not going to do Harinam Sankirtan, we'll go back. But I didn't understand that Londoners do not stop activities just because it's cold and rainy, because it's generally cold and rainy. So uh, the Kirtan went on, and uh, the, the enthusiasm, the enlivenment, the exuberance kept increasing and increasing and increasing. And often the rain was also increasing and increasing, and so we spent quite a bit of time under an awning to be sheltered from the rain. And I remember just feeling so much happiness, what what we Hare Krishna devotees like to call ecstasy, but I was feeling so much happiness, and I really felt that Krishna was present in his name, the whole spiritual world was present in the Hare Krishna mantra. It was such a wonderful, enlivening experience. So we were out there for some hours, under awnings and and shelters, and uh, obviously the rain goes up and down in intensity, but it pretty much was just raining, and then we had to return to the temple. At that point, the rain was pretty severe, and so if we just walked straight on the sidewalk from our awning back to the temple, we would have all gotten completely drenched, we had the instruments and so forth. So Mahavishnu Swami decided to go back by weaving in and out of shops. So we would, we would go into a shop, and we would go through all the aisles of the shop, and then we would go into the other shop, and so this way we didn't spend a whole lot of time on the sidewalk. And in the shops, we would be singing and dancing and playing instruments, and we were continuing our Harinam Sankirtan in the shops. Now, as the Soho Temple has done Harinam Sankirtan three times a day in central London, for many, many years. So two of the people who live there and work there, we're a very, very much just a part of the, of the surrounding fixtures. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not something very exotic to them. And so most of the shops welcomed us. I mean, uh, I wasn't quite sure what they thought about it. I, I, was, I was laughing a little bit in embarrassment, actually, 
while we were doing this, but it was still so much fun. And uh, obviously, they couldn't sell anything while we were making, you know, uh, this loud this loud kirtan as we were going through the aisles of the store. But the stores welcomed us, except for some. There were some stores that did not allow us to enter. And I was noticing after some time that the stores that did not allow us to enter were all of a certain category. They were gambling places, meat-eating restaurants like McDonald's, uh, places that sold various sorts of intoxicants and places that were selling pornography, uh, but they didn't let us come in. They, they stopped us at the door, and all the other places let us in. And, and I thought, that, that was very interesting, because I doubt if most of those shops knew that we preached specifically against their business, but still they, they didn't let us in. So this is, of course, shops, not householders, but a very similar principle. Who welcomes the devotees and who doesn't welcome the devotees? When I was growing up, we, I, we used to study the Bible, and the stories that were told were that Abraham had a tent in the desert that had four doors. It had a door on each side in each of the four directions, and that anyone who came from any direction would immediately become, have entrance into his tent and Abraham would wash their feet. So this concept of, of hospitality is still very prevalent in the old cultures of the world. That anyone, any traveler who comes, receives a good reception, re- receives some at least sweet words, at least a little straw mat to sit on. Uh, why washing their feet? Because in countries where people are only wearing sandals, countries where it's hot and people are wearing sandals, so their feet get dirty even in the shoes. The shoes are protecting against the rough surfaces, but they're not protecting against dirt. And so just taking off your shoes when you enter a place is not sufficient to prevent bringing dirt and, and all kinds of nasty things into the home. So not only do you take off your shoes, but you wash your feet. And the Tirumala temple at the top of the, of the mountain, they have an arrangement where water is just flowing down these small, uh, very, very small steps, like maybe an inch or so high. And as you walk up these steps, your feet get washed with water, and then you walk on a kind of matting to sort of dry your feet. So they, they have kind of a, a mechanized, automatic foot washing program. We know that uh, Lord Sri Krishna himself, in his uh, dear Prasanta aspect of his personality, he washes the feet of all of the attendees at the Rajasuya Yagya of King Yudhisthira. And the tradition is often, at least of those who follow the Vedas, not only do you wash the person's feet, but you take the water that washed their feet and you put some on your head. So if we think about this from an ordinary point of view, you know, on the street there's dirt, there's animals excrete, excrete on the street, uh, so many dead insects, and so many things. And the reason that you're washing the feet is to remove all the stuff that doesn't get put in the house. And you know, our head is the most valuable part of our body, and so to take the water mixed with all these nasty things from someone's feet and put it on your head 
is very extraordinary. So that was done as a sign of respect, as a sign of humility, that very much like bowing at a person's feet to take that water from the feet and sprinkle it on your head. So this was the reception given. That everyone, they have their feet washed. You know, uh, nowadays in ISKCON, the GBC have rules about uh, foot washing ceremonies. They talk about foot washing ceremonies, that it can only be done for people who, you know, authorize gurus and only like once a year on their birthdays and, and so many things. Uh, in traditional societies, every guest had their foot washed. Of course, you know, today, if you live in a temperate climate, you might not want to remove your socks and have your feet washed. Uh, perhaps like maybe they get sweaty in your shoes or something, but it, it starts to become a symbolic, only a symbolic gesture, rather than a practical gesture, a practical thing that had symbolic or metaphorical overtones. It, it just switches completely to the metaphor. But the idea in general is that those who own houses should be welcoming to those who are travelers or those who don't have houses. That they, that this concept of sharing, this concept of sharing is a principle of Varnashram Dharma. And we talk sometimes about the differences between principles and details. So a detail is that you wash people's feet, uh, although uh, that's mentioned here about the feet, the water that's washed their feet. Uh, that is a detail because, you know, if you're wearing big boots and it's the wintertime, you might not even want your foot, feet washed. But the idea of making people comfortable after a journey and of being open and accessible, of sharing, sharing your home, sharing your food, the householders are supposed to go out three times before they eat and say, whoever's hungry, uh, come and eat. Whoever's hungry, come and eat. Who's ever hungry, come and eat. Of giving your money in charity, of giving your time uh, to charitable interests, of not just working for yourself. I mean, a lot of the concept of marriage is like that. That one doesn't just take care of oneself. One takes care of one's spouse, one's children, one's elderly family members to decrease this concept of selfishness. And even more so when this, is, this principle of welcoming is applied uh, to those who are tirtapariya, which we'll discuss shortly. So this idea of sharing, that I'm not selfish, is part of what makes opulences really opulent. Now we see here we have akila sampadaha, all opulences. So one might think, if I have all opulences then I'm going to protect them. I'm, I'm not going to share them. I'm going to enjoy them myself. So this concept of all opulences, of having opulences, of what are opulences, where do they come from, and much more importantly, or the ultimate in importance, is how can those opulences bring us happiness, is basically what's discussed, one of the many themes that's being discussed that are implied in this verse. So you might have all opulence. What are opulences? So we talk about that there are six opulences. Right? There's the opulence of Shri, of beauty. Or do you have a beautiful place? Like when Sudama Vipur came back to his home. It was beautiful. Beautiful is what the building is constructed out of. You know, is it made out of stone? Is it made out of wood? Are there, are there carvings? 
Is it just concrete blocks? <laughs> and you see in the old buildings, especially in Europe, that the buildings themselves were works of art. And the outside of the building, so many carvings. What is your furniture made of? You know, like right now I'm using a plastic table. What's your furniture made out of? What, what illuminates your home? We read about homes illuminated with jewels. You know, what kind of artwork do you have? I remember once we had a donor to our school, and I suggested to the donor that, in thankfulness for his donation, we could send him a print of a BBT painting, beautifully framed, huge. And he said, I only have original art. I don't, I don't have any prints. So, you know, surely beauty, uh, it also means charisma. That's one kind of opulence. Another kind of opulence is virya. Virya means strength and health. It also means fertility. You have a lot of family members, a big family, big dynasty. Strength and health. So then there's the opulence of vairagya. You have detachment, you have freedom, you have a lot of autonomy in your life. The attachment of aishvarya, which can mean just literal cash, you know, gold lying around. It may also mean that you're a leader, that many people obey you, and many people do what you say. Then yasha, that people are very impressed with you, they talk about how wonderful you are, uh, they talk about your good deeds, like the king would be woken up in the morning, you know, the, by people singing his glories, and, and so forth. And then we have um, jnana, the opulence of knowledge, that you have great wisdom, that people come far and wide to seek your advice, and so forth and so on. So these are the six opulences. Now, these opulences are all the province, although Sri is one of the opulences, that of beauty and that of charismatic leadership. Sri is also a name for Lakshmi, and Lakshmi Devi personifies all six of these opulences and all of their permutations and their subtleties. And Lakshmi, of course, is the consort of the Lord, so originally, opulences are all spiritual. They are all the internal energy of the Lord. They are designed, we've talked about this in some previous verses, how the natural opulences are designed to bring us closer to Krishna, just like your mother brings you closer to your father. Jaganmata, Lakshmi Devi, is the mother of the universe. And when we have spiritual opulences, we bring, that brings us closer to Krishna. And then there's, Lakshmi has her expansion, is Durga. So then there's the material opulences, the shadow or the reflection of these opulences, where, you know, it looks like you have wealth, it looks like you have power, it looks like you have freedom, it looks like you have beauty, it looks like you have um, a dynasty or health, it looks like you have wisdom. But what you're really getting is a reflection like the banyan tree upside down in the water. You don't really have opulences. So here the Bhagavatam is, uh, here we're reading about those who have apparent opulences. They have a reflection or a shadow of opulences. They have the opulences given by Durga. And we'll find out what the difference is shortly. So spiritual opulences are going to be found in Lakshmi, and Lakshmi is found in, with Narayana. Lakshmi is often called Chanchala, someone who's very flickering. But she's very steady to serve her husband, Lord Narayan. Of course, she has many, many forms, Radharani, Sita Devi, so forth. 
She's the spiritual energy of the Lord. So she's found in the Lord's home. That's where, if you go to the, the home of the Lord, there you will find the goddess of fortune, Lakshmi, Sahasra, Satasambhama, You find many, many, many goddesses of fortune serving the Lord. And so you find the real opulences. So these opulences found in the Lord's place, the Lord's place is called a Tirta. Now Tirta literally means a place to cross. Like if you have a river that gets very narrow, there's straits of a river, like Detroit means the straits. That's a place where the river becomes very narrow and you can cross very easily. So at a Tirta, one can cross from material to spiritual consciousness very easily. So when you go to a Tirta and you cross into spiritual consciousness, you end up in the Lord's abode. And the opulences that you find there in the Lord's abode are spiritual and enlivening. Now here we have Tirta Padia. Tirta Padia means at the feet of the Tirta. Literally, those, those who are staying at the Tirta. And of course we have a uh, item of devotional service, the nine main items of Bhakti, which is serving the lotus feet, Padaseva. And this Padaseva is considered to be also going to holy places. So if you travel to holy places, uh, that is considered serving the lotus feet of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord's feet are walking, you know, in his home, right? So when you go to the Lord's home and you serve the Lord's home, you are serving the place where his feet walk. And those who offer service to the Lord's home are at the feet of the Tirta. They're at the feet of the Lord, and Prabhupada explains in this purport at length that that means they are Vaishnavas, and he's distinguishing the Vaishnavas from the Mayavadi sannyasis. Now also, a person who's at the feet of the Tirta, they can act like a Tirta themselves. So I've given this analogy before, you know, just like in your in your phone, your, your mobile phone. So you go someplace where there's a Wi-Fi connection, right? So like here, I go and there's a Wi-Fi connection. Uh, yeah. Uh, but your phone also has its own data receptivity. And when you're connected via your phone, you can use your phone as a Wi-Fi connection for somebody else. You can use your phone as a hotspot. So if someone is internally in the consciousness of connecting with the Lord, then they themselves become a Tirta, and anyone who connects with them then is in the abode of the Lord. And then one finds spiritual opulences. Now, what do these spiritual opulences do? We have, Srila Prabhupada uses English words, enthuse, um, enliven. Uh, Malati, my god sister Malati often likes to say that Prabhupada didn't so much like the word excited. <laughs> uh, but to be enthused and enlivened, to be having a thrill at every moment. The reason we want opulences is to be happy. And under Maya Biasat, Prabhupada was once asked, what is the purpose of life? He said the purpose of life is to be happy. So materially, we're thinking, well, if I have a beautiful home full of beautiful things, if I have my own physical beauty, if my spouse and children are beautiful, 
I have charisma, if I have great health and uh, virility, fertility, and a big dynasty, and strength, if I have leadership, if people do what I say, and I, or I have lots of money, if I have a lot of freedom, if I have a lot of autonomy, if people really like me, they're saying nice things about me because I do so many good things, and if I know a lot of things, then I will be happy. My knowledge will make me happy. My freedom will make me happy. Other people's approval of me will make me happy. My artwork and architecture will make me happy. When people do what I say, I'll become happy. Uh, but that's not the case. We've said many times that all of us know people who have great amounts of these opulences and commit suicide due to unhappiness or become addicted to drugs or alcohol, or whatever. Uh, they can't be happily married. So we all know of people who have many of these opulences in large quantities, and the opulences fail to bring them happiness. When one gets these opulences from the spiritual platform, however, then one is enlightened and enlivened, because one is not trying to enjoy the opulences directly. One is, is using the opulences in the service of the Lord. If I'm trying to enjoy Lakshmi Devi directly, then I become Ravana, right? And if I try to use those opulences in the service of the Lord, then I become like Hanuman. So when I'm in a tirta, when I'm in the Lord's place, I mean, we think of it as uh, even in ordinary life, if I'm in someone else's place, like right now, I've been in someone else's place for four months. So I'm in someone else's place. I want to use the opulences of this place to serve the owner of the place. Now, the owner also wants me to enjoy those opulences, but in relationship to her, she's, she doesn't want me to abscond with her opulences. And sometimes she may give me something. She may say, here, you may, you may have this. You may have this to keep for yourself even when you leave. But I'm using them for her pleasure. Yes. And then my pleasure, her pleasure is in facilitating my using them, and my pleasure is in facilitating her. So this is the mood of someone at a tirta. Someone at a tirta is using everything in the service of the Lord, and because we are part and parcel of the Lord, when we do that, we feel very happy. Again, we have material examples of this. When I try to please people, I'm staying at their home and I try to please them, I also feel happy. The opulences in and of themselves do not make us happy because they're not ours. Ravana couldn't, Sita could not make him happy. He, was, he, he derived no happiness whatsoever from having Sita in his kingdom. He, only, he could only derive happiness if he had returned Sita to Ram. So Hanuman was very happy with no desire to enjoy Sita and Ravana was very unhappy. So if one uses these opulences without being in a tirta, without being in the Lord's place, if one thinks this is my place, then the opulences not only do not give us happiness, they are sources of misery. They breed envy. So, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but a large number of crimes are committed because someone is envious of someone else's opulences. You know, I want your wife for myself, I want your husband for myself, I want your money for myself, I want your car for myself. 
And if I can't have it for myself, maybe I just want to destroy it for you. I want to destroy your reputation. I want to destroy your whatever. Right? And this is... How many crimes are, are committed for this? I was just reading in the seventh canto where Prahlad Maharaj is instructing his friends about how money is sweeter than honey. Srila Prabhupada was saying how people are risking their life. You have mercenaries, soldiers of fortune, who are risking their life and their health to make money. People diving under the ocean to get pearls or looking for treasure or risking their life to get money. The thief, Prabhupada said, you know, they're risking their life to get money. And so many people are risking their life and their health just to make an ordinary living. So, you know, people are, are suffering so much to try to get this money. And then there's simply so much envy, even within the family. So all of our acharyas, in commenting on this verse, talk about how these venomous serpents, that the family members themselves, Prabhupada alludes to it in his purport, act like venomous serpents. I was talking to my grandson-in-law this morning about the fact that my stepmother, as my mother died and less than a year later my father died, and as soon as my father died, my stepmother made a lawsuit against my mother's estate so that her stepchildren and stepgrandchildren would not receive any of their father and grandfather's money through my mother or through my father. So she took, she took our inheritance uh, from, from our mother, and uh, then later she took that inheritance also from our father. So we were talking about the story of Dhruva Maharaj, how uh, Dhruva also had a stepmother who tried to disinherit him. So this is often the nature in families, you know, whether it was millions of years ago with Dhruva Maharaj, whether it's at the present time with families, it's very common you know, that the, the ex-wife, or the ex-husband, or the brother even, or the uncle, or whatever, you know, they, they kill, people kill each other over these, they're so envious, even within a family. So it's not just the thief that's willing to kill the householder and risk his life for money, but it could be, you know, your wife, it could be your brother, and your child, etc., who just is trying to get your opulences. And, the, and then... Even if no one's trying to take them away, you're afraid of that. One is always in fear. You know, did I lock my door? Did I, did I actually lock my door? Did I lock the car? Right? I know this person got their stuff stolen, that person got... I could get my stuff stolen. You know, I've got to make sure that I take care of everything. Or we're worried, you know, I'll lose all my money on the stock market. Or you know, my biz- maybe my business will fail, I'll lose everything that way. Or somebody's spreading rumors about me, I'm going to lose my fame, or I'm getting old, I'm going to lose my beauty. And I'm getting old, I'm going to lose my strength. You know, the world's moving so fast, my knowledge can't keep up with it. There's a pandemic, I've lost my freedom. You know, it, we're constantly in anxiety that we're going to lose our material opulences. So we don't really get much pleasure out of them. Because we're always afraid we're going to lose them, we're worried about envy and competition over them. And so our enjoyment of these opulences is very mixed with anxiety. It's like sweet rice mixed with sand. And the comparison here in this verse, it means we're just living with a bunch of serpents. (laughs) We're living with a bunch of poisonous serpents. Maybe we're also a poisonous serpent. Because we don't have a consciousness of living in the Lord's house. We think, oh, it's my house. 
I'm, I'm going to, to barricade it. So instead, we are urged to make our home into a holy place. So one way we make our home into a holy place is we have an altar, like we have this one gentleman who does a lot of construction work and repairs for the devotees, the temple, and he's he's fixing up a room for me at the temple. And he said, I know the most important thing to have in your room is a shrine. (laughs) He says, you have to have a shrine. Everyone has to have a shrine in their room. And this is one of the ways that we make our home a tirta. The most important way to make your home a tirta, though, is not just having an altar or a shrine where we have the deity and the picture of the Lord, but by having the Lord's devotees there. Because the Lord has his own original dhamma, where he always lives, but tirtas are generally, they're a temporary place. They're a place set up where the Lord is, is like an embassy, it's a temporary manifestation of the country. So the Lord comes and stays in a tirta because of his devotees, just like we may go someplace because we have friends or family there. And as soon as our friends or family move from there, then we may not go there anymore. So if you really want the Lord to be in, in your place, one has to invite his friends. One has to invite his devotees. And one has to invite them with joy and welcome them and share one's home with them, share one's valuable possessions and uh, so-called one's opulence that really belongs to the Lord. One must share them with them. So even on a, as we were saying in the beginning, even on an ordinary mundane level, this sharing of our opulences in this world even if we're just sharing them in in ordinary charity, is essential. Krishna says charity should not be given up even by the great souls. And just as a general principle of Varna Dharma and Ashram Dharma, one is supposed to be giving in charity, one is supposed to be sharing. But on a transcendental level, one is supposed to be sharing particularly with the devotees. Now, what kind of devotees are going to come and visit your house or have a need to stay in your house? So particularly those who are mendicants, which is why Srila Prabhupada in this purport, although we're speaking about devotees in general, is particularly talking about the sannyasis or those who are mendicants. So there are devotees of the Lord who travel for the specific purpose of bringing enlightenment and spirituality to others. For themselves, they could stay in one place and concentrate on their spiritual life but for the good of the world they are traveling, and of course, it's nice for them to have a place to stay. As renunciates, they can sleep out in the open. They're not uh, the, the deep renunciates. They didn't need a place to stay. But of course, they appreciate a place to stay, and it's good for the those who have homes to let them be used for the benefit of these renunciates, for the benefit of these people who don't have a home of their own. And in the rainy season in India, such people would stay for up to four months. That's a long time to have a guest, so they would stay up to four months in the rainy season. And those who have homes, who have facilities, who have opulences, would share with such people. And when they did so, they found that their opulences would increase. Now, this is sort of interesting. Actually, that's true even just for ordinary charity. Whenever we give, whatever we give in charity, we're karmically going to get back. And the more qualified the person to whom we give charity, the more we get back. 
So if we're giving in charity to self-realized Vaishnavas, then we get back unlimited. So there's no decrease in opulences by sharing our opulences with devotees. And then, interestingly enough, the happiness that we're looking for uh, by having money or by having friends or, or something like that, we really achieve because we're achieving it on the spiritual level. So if people want to be opulent, if they want to have akila sampadaha, if they want to have full opulences, then they should open their door to the devotees. They should be sharing with the devotees. Now, of course, uh, we may have some doubt that, well, there are people who appear as devotees, and maybe they may not be, and maybe they will cheat me, and instead of increasing my opulence, maybe they'll seal everything from me. Uh, that may happen. <laughs> As Srila Prabhupada said that his own father was very liberal with having sadhus come, but a lot of them were not real sadhus, a lot of them were fake sadhus. Still he had this mood of facilitating the devotees. So it's not supposed to be us who are, you know, always, are you the real sadhu, are you the real sadhu? But we should be liberal in general about sharing, and especially liberal with the devotees. So it doesn't necessarily mean we have to invite the world into our, our physical home, but we should definitely try to share our research with our resources with devotees. And such is true even if we have practically nothing ourselves. It's not that first I'm going to have a lot and then I will share. Whatever we have, we should certainly share with the devotees, be welcoming with the devotees and the saintly persons, indeed with everybody, but especially with the devotees. Because at the de- where the devotees are, we will find the Lord. And where the Lord is, we will find everything we desire. The devotee coming to my home. I got a call just a couple of years ago from the Honolulu Temple that um, Chaitanya Charan has sort of was coming on relatively short notice. And they didn't have anywhere for him to stay. And... Because no one was inviting him. So they called and they said, hey, Mary, could, could uh, Chaitanya Charan come and stay with you for several days? And um, I never met him, but I, I had seen his, some of his videos and, and so on. I certainly knew of his glories. And I thought, wow, Chaitanya Charan, can he stay with me? Can he come and live with me? And uh, so anyway, I, I, I went to go pick him up at the temple. And, um, oh, so we just... It was so wonderful. It was like someone from from Vaikuntha just coming to just bless my home with, with so much mercy. I felt so purified. We became like instant friends. Maybe he was humoring me, but you know, we stayed up late, late into the night, just talking about wonderful things. And um, it, it, it's almost like I've never come down from that. <laughs> Elevation of having him come and stay with me and being with him. It was just one of the sweetest memories of my whole devotional journey. Wow. Having him in my home. Wow. Wow. Okay, I have a question. Yes. Um, nowadays, if you... Um, uh, if you don't have high walls and you know guards at the door, then uh, all kinds of undesirable people will come and exploit you, and you know 
salesmen will come and who knows what. So how would you practically uh, do what's recommended here? Well, I don't think that's just a nowadays thing. I think there were thieves and rogues thousands of years ago. It's not that thieves and rogues have been invented in the last five years. So this concept that one puts oneself someone at risk is, is certainly there. But people would take the risk in order, to, uh, in order to serve others, in order to take care of others. That Prabhupada was uh, told in Detroit that, well, if we invite anybody in, you know, the local kids will steal. And Prabhupada says, it's not an offense to be stolen from, it's only an offense to steal. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, I'm not suggesting that we never lock our doors, and I'm not suggesting that we let anybody in, but we should certainly have a mood of, of sharing and openness. And I mean, I know there was a situation a while ago where someone I knew was letting some people camp on their deck, and when my friend told me about the nature of the people camping on their deck, I said, you know, you've got to get them out of here. It sounds like you really have a you know, complete crazy person there. <laughs> Krishna ended up, ended up arranging that. So somehow we need to keep safe, but in the, at the other hand, we also have to be giving. And we want to try to be as giving as possible. You know, one thing is that uh, if you don't have a whole lot of material opulence, it's, it's a heck of a lot easier to be open. Ravinder Sharuk tells this funny story how uh, when he just became a devotee and he was at, uh, living near his college, but uh, he, you know, being in the association of devotees, he became really renounced, mm. and he got broken into twice, and they couldn't find anything worth stealing. <laughs> <laughs> he just messed the place up. That's just a really bunch funny. of sense and books. That's really funny. Yes, there's. You know, like, like Jesus said, that it's harder for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And that the love of money is the root of all evil. So, you know, many times having a lot of material opulence simply makes spiritual life and happiness harder. You know, it's, it's just a fact. And it's one of the reasons that Krishna sometimes doesn't give his devotees a lot of opulence. Of course, if we have a lot of opulence and we don't get like that, we had a lot of opulence and we can share, then we can use it in Krishna service. That's even better. If nobody else is going to ask a question, I would like to ask another one. Anybody else have anything? Okay, if nobody else is going to speak up, then, you know, one thing is, uh, uh, on Monday, uh, we had an interesting verse uh, that was saying that, uh, in the purport especially, Prabhupada was making the point that uh, for a devotee, uh, he can't always be recognized. Uh, and uh, he gave the example of Chandrasekhar, when Sanatana Goswami came, uh, uh, he couldn't recognize Sanatana Goswami as a devotee. Um, so uh, one co- uh, verse was quoted that uh, uh, no one can recognize a devotee by his words, by his activities, or by his appearance. Um, 
However, is it not true that uh, for the uh, Madhyama Adhikar, he can see who is innocent and who is a devotee and who is a non-devotee like that? But for generally, the, it's only for the generally, generally, one generally, can tell. There are some exceptions. Well, the, the example that uh, was given was like Putana, the great, the Nichasiddhas, they couldn't, or the Parishads, they couldn't see that she was a non-devotee, a demon. So that was the example that was given. So what, so. There's many demons like that. There's Putana, there's Vyamasura, Palambasura, where only God could tell. The devotees couldn't tell. Which is one reason that we should be very careful on taking it upon ourselves as devotees to try to root out all demons dressed like devotees. You know, it's better to let God do that. And we're better off being a little bit, as far as doing service, and we're not talking about taking instruction and taking someone as guru, but as far as taking service, giving service to devotees, we're better off being a little liberal about it and erring on the side of figuring that someone's a devotee. <laughs> Because we can serve everybody and anybody. There, there's, there's no bar to giving for so we can give prasadam to everybody. We can give the holy name to everybody. We can try to offer some comfort to anybody, even to a criminal. There's, there's no harm. So we're better off seeing everyone as a devotee in that sense. And far more discrimination is required when we want to know who we should take shelter of. And then it said we can recognize a saintly person by their words, particularly. And we can recognize them to a large extent by their actions. It, it, it's not... If there was no way to recognize a devotee, we wouldn't have all these descriptions of devotees in the Shastra. Arjuna asked Krishna, how can I recognize a devotee? And he says how you can recognize a devotee. But we should be careful about thinking that we can be absolute about it, because, as you were saying, there's Putana, there's Yomasura, there's Prabhupada, and even the cowherd boys can be fooled. So... Not that because the Calvert boys can be fooled, the residents of Vrindavan can be fooled, therefore I should be a major skeptic, and I should assume that everyone's a demon in disguise and criticize everyone, but rather I should assume that everyone's a devotee and see how I can do service to everyone, and at the same time discriminating in who I take as my intimate associates and from whom I take guidance. So I do need to end here. Thank you very much. Can I, I actually have a meeting to go to, and I need to leave right away. Yeah, I'm, this I'm is so sorry. really good. I'm very sorry that I, I yeah. love to hear what you have to say, but Thank I do have to go. Hare Krishna, Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai.